This episode of Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com moment. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Our guest today is Sarah Kay, who uh, I'm going to say some words like she's a poet and a spoken word poet and a teacher, but you should stop listening and you should go find her TED Talk. And uh, I'm sure, Sarah, that you're tired of the TED Talk being the introduction to you. No, that's fine. I think that's many people's introduction to me. And uh, you should go watch it. it. Yes, it's 18 minutes, but it's worth it for you to listen at least to the opening poem. But if possible, watch the TED Talk and then come back. Because Sarah does a great, you do such a great job of introducing yourself and your sort of mission and everything. You've, you know, in a, in a way, you, uh, you stated in that thing this ambition for the kind of life you wanted to lead. And then you've been leading it ever since. <laughs> well, I, I, that wasn't the plan, per se. But it's, <laughs> it's been nice that it has, has worked out. I, I, I want to get into your story and what the plan, whether there was a plan. Was there a plan? No, not really. Certainly not this. Certainly not this. Not the life that's happened since. No, no. I think if I had a vague plan, it probably was either being a playwright or going to film school. Those were sort of vague plans. Even right up until when you gave that talk? And it oh, was... yeah, certainly. Certainly. I mean, in college, I majored in modern culture and media, which is about as close to film studies as Brown University gets. And I, I did a lot of post-production intern stuff, and I really thought I was going to go to film school. Because you, you thought this thing that you loved could never actually give you, like, the life sustenance? No, I just... I've always loved storytelling, period, yeah. and I think a huge part of storytelling is deciding what medium and what form a story wants to be told in. So I have been a theater fanatic since I was a kid, um, love movies. My parents are both photographers and do storytelling in a very visual way. Um, so film seemed like a really exciting one, and that's kind of the direction I was headed. And I had never, as a kid, just the idea of being a professional poet was not on the table in the least. It wasn't even like that was a dream, but it was too hard to imagine. It like, didn't even, it wasn't even on the radar. Well, it'd be, it's like saying you're going to be a professional snowflake maker. Right, exactly. Like, you know... How, how's that going to be possible? Maybe there's been one snowflake maker ever right? who was able to do that right. for a living. <laughs> right. So I can see why that seemed impossible. But even I, I wonder, is that how you define what you are now as a, a poet? Because from the outside, it seems like there's so much more going on. It depends who I'm talking to. I think um, I laugh a lot about what happens when I, I'm in airport security often because I travel a lot. And when I cross borders, you know, they'll say like, well, what, what's your profession? Yeah. Um, and I'm always trying to figure out what's the least suspicious thing I can say. Cause poet is like, there's no way that's true to a, to a security officer. You know what I mean? Like they just all look at each other and like this, let's pull this one out of security. Cause she's, <laughs> you carry your books, right? You no. carry your books. So, so sometimes I say teacher, that one usually gets me through pretty cleanly. Uh, occasionally I'll say writer, um, is that you know. the scary one to say, writer? No. It, again, it depends on it depends on the person I'm talking to. I think oftentimes if I say writer, depending on who I'm speaking to, 
then they want proof. Then they want, well, what books have you published? Or, you know, have I read your work anywhere? Or where, you know, things yes. like that. Oh, I would and love then I have to, to say, s- well, it, <laughs> it's a different kind of writing. Um, I would love to see your spoken word poem that would start with, have I read your work? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be awesome to see where that would go. But I, I just want to back up for, for one second because the reason I came into contact with what you do, and I'm, I imagine it, it's funny to me that you would have to even tell people who you are or what you do because you're so huge in my house. <laughs> like so like you're uh you know it's taylor swift and you are basically what oh matter in, in our home because our my daughter anna amy amy and my daughter anna brought you into our, our lives by showing us that ted talk and there was a period of time and i'm sure you're this for a lot of people and i'm you know not just young girls but young, young people and, and i've always wondered what it feels like to you that you're you're the best friend to poets who don't have another friend oh that's very lovely thanks <laughs> but I'm sure you know that. And and I'm wondering how that role makes you feel because girls interact with you and find you sometimes at vulnerable points in their lives. And you give them, it seems, or in our case, you gave our daughter a key that enabled her to open a door that like led to a path that made her go from being unhappy and feeling like an outsider to being like happy and feeling like an artist. How do you interact with all that yourself? Well, I think people find poetry when they need to, or I hope. I try I try to help facilitate that as much as possible, but I, I believe that it's important for people to be able to find poetry when they need it. Um, and sometimes I am the gateway to poetry, which is awesome, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity to be that gateway. But I do think it's just being a gateway. I do think that then once they get to me, hopefully they get to you know, a million other poets. Um, I think David Berman, Mary Carr, right? I mean, or across the board, you know, whether it's whether it's um, current modern spoken word poets, whether it's long dead page poets, you know, I I like thinking of myself as the gateway drug to poetry um, for a a lot of people. It's, It's a real honor to be that. And I think that that's very much largely in part to the platform that TED has and the visibility that that TED Talk afforded me, you know, the for a long time, spoken word poetry was very much a localized art form, right? You would go to your local bar, you would go to the local venue, you would perform with the same faces every week, which is what I did for for a long time. Um, and there were these, there are these local scenes, there are um, that you start to to hear the same voices, and there's a style of of sure. where you live, et cetera. Um, but whether with, it's Bowery or New Eurekin exactly, or whatever those or, things or, are, exactly. Um, and it's very regional. And and then with the rise of YouTube and the internet and the ability to tap into this giant archive of spoken word poets from now all over the world, that regionality hasn't disappeared, but it has changed. Um, And so now people have access to more poetry of more styles from many different types of people. But that sort of, it doesn't exactly avoid the question, but it does sort of, it does sort of um, sidestep. No one's too smart for you, Sarah, but it does sort of sidestep the the question that which is that I'm interested in, which is, what is it? Yes, you're a gateway, but because of what you write about, because of how vulnerable and open you make yourself be when you perform the stuff you perform, you have to know that the that girls look at you as someone who has these answers. Oh dear! Whether you do or you don't, that's <laughs> or someone who is herself kind of like shining. Like while shining light is sort of like a shining light, I'm, like emotionally, how do you process those interactions with these girls? I mean, I think and I know it's, it's not just girls, but it's 
many girls. So I, I think it has to do with, I found spoken word poetry when I was 14, and I was at an incredibly vulnerable place in my life for a number of reasons. Why? A, just because I was 14, and yeah. that is where you're at when you're 14, or I was anyway. Um, but also, I grew up in lower Manhattan, and um, 9-11 happened when I was 13. Wow. And yeah. in the aftermath of that event, my family was out of our house. Um, my parents' marriage really suffered. Um, my brother was nine, and, and he went through a lot. And... I was very much aware of the fact that the adults around me did not have time for my fears or my doubts or my vulnerabilities. They did not have time to answer stupid questions because they were busy trying to hold the world together and try to fix this unfixable new reality. Reality, exactly. And um, it was right in that moment that I stumbled into spoken word poetry. And it was a, a venue where a few things were really remarkable. One was that I, as a 14-year-old girl, was listened to and seen in a way yes. that I had never felt before. And also that I was allowed to explore my flaws, my fears, my joys, and my vulnerabilities and not feel stupid for being human. And I think those two forces or those multi-dimensional forces combined to make this art form so attractive to me. That's, that's what Right. Me. And then you being seen, I guess that's the flip side of it is now you're in the position to be the seer, to see them when they approach you. How do you, how is it not so, Although I don't think I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's changed. I think that when I was 14, I mean, the, the beauty of the art form to me when I would go to a dive bar to listen and look at poetry, the beauty of it was that it was just as important to listen as it was to speak. Every poet got up on stage and did their poem, but then every poem sat down, every poet sat down in the audience and, and spent and time watch. listening and applauding and groaning and snapping and whatever it was they were doing to give the feedback that we are bearing witness to what you are giving us in this space, right? There's something really powerful about people gathering and sharing breath and time and space like that. And so I was trained that it's not just about speaking your piece and getting out. It's about listening and it's about bearing witness to somebody else. And it's about spending your time. It's a training in empathy is what it is. And it's a training in being a <laughs> good human. <laughs> um, and, and so I've, I've been doing that or I've been trying to do that since, since I started. I think that the difference is, you know, now I get to spend a lot more time in education spaces. I get to spend a lot more time with young people in classrooms or in communities. And I get to participate in them experiencing what I experienced, which is sometimes the first time that someone feels really seen or listened to, um, just as it was for me. Oftentimes, that's what it feels like for them. And I get to be present for that. Is it still moving to you? Is it moving to you? When, do you like allow yourself, because so much of your work you talk about being present, do you allow yourself to stay present in all of that and receiving that and in watching that? Oh, yeah. I mean, and is it still moving? Yeah, it's probably the thing that keeps me in it. Poetry, just as any other small niche art scene, can become boring or repetitive yes. or incestuous or whatever it is. Um, and the thing that makes it so that I'm still drawn to it is when I see young people have that experience that I had to, to 
feel empowered in their own voice, to feel like they can explore parts of themselves that they have otherwise been made to feel shame around, that they can, um, you know, feel a little less alone in, in an experience or in a moment or in a memory. I think watching that over and over again is what <laughs> reminds me that there's still power in it. Yeah, what an amazing, I mean, what I, I can't imagine how wonderful it must feel. Like um, this week, Anna, our daughter, she wrote a piece earlier this year that got published somewhere online on MTV. And uh, Huffington Post women selected 28 pieces by all women of all ages, like Lena Dunham and all sorts of famous people. And they put Anna's piece in there. And that's awesome. You know, it was incredible, like mind blowing because she had no we had no idea that that was going to happen. And then you open it up and it's like the 28 things all women need to read from 2015. And Anna's piece was there. But like she would say to me. She basically started writing because you gave her permission. Even though she came from two writers, you gave her permission. And that must repeat itself over and over. I mean, do you walk around with, like, this awareness of all the little Sarah Kays that you've launched? <laughs> no, I think I think um, that is really moving to me, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. And I think the fact that someone would allow me to play such an important and intimate role in their life is not something I take for granted, and that that is a real gift. But I also think that, or something that I carry around with me in terms of that is, I think it has more to do with where you are in your life and where you meet my work than it does with me, um, because I'm that's deep and true. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm off doing my laundry somewhere the moment that you see this poem that speaks to you, which I love and I'm grateful. But it has very little to do with me as as a person in my normal every day. That's so interesting because you posted that poem about laundry. <laughs> Recently. Just a couple of days. I mean, it's an older poem, but you yeah. just posted it for some reason. Well, that image is strong to you, right? Of like what the month dealing with this sort of every day. Yeah. The duality of knowing there's this specialness that you're trying to get at and then being in your flannels and doing your laundry. Yeah. I guess because I've had poets who or not even just poets, I've had artists whose art means so much to me and who has who have transformed me or who have defined parts of my life in various ways. And I, I understand that they are also humans that are probably assholes at moments. You know, like I, I also believe very strongly in not... Deifying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, yeah, there's this great... I don't know if you ever... There's this great poem that I think you would really dig in... Uh, the collected lyrics of Bob Dylan, there are, there are a few pages of poems. And there's this one to Woody Guthrie. Have you ever mm. read it? No, but I... It's about Woody... It's about B Dylan... God, I haven't thought of it in years, and I, I won't get it right now. But, um, but it's about Dylan visiting Woody Guthrie in the hospital. And Woody was his everything. Right. His reason for coming across the country, you know. And, and how Woody would constantly, through his actions, uh, try to strip... Dylan's idea of who he was as an artist right? so that he could see that it just was a human creating right. this work. And this person was really dirty and fucked up and had lots of problems and was dying. And, and, uh, and Bob talks about in this poem how I, I think that really changed his whole relationship with the idea of holding artists out separately from their work as heroes. Yeah. I mean, I also think that poetry itself is an art form that people tend to place on a pedestal for a number of reasons. But a lot of times people worry that their 
that they're not deep enough or they're not whatever it is they've been led to believe poetry has to be they don't have it or they've been I sometimes say that they've been made to they've been made to feel unwelcome in the house of poetry and so a big part of what I do especially in schools and especially in the education side of the work that I do is make poetry feel more accessible um, because I I do believe that it's a house with enough rooms for everyone. Well, that word enough is really powerful because we all feel like we're not enough often, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to battle. Yeah. But I think a big part of the door opening that you're talking about is people realizing like, oh, wait, this is a door that is available to me. I, I didn't know it was. And that's 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 important. But where does talent like intersect with that in your mind? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that there are people who are born with natural talent, but I also think that there are people who work very hard to create it. And because talent is so subjective and no one's going to be able to decide who's got it or who doesn't, you know, definitively, worrying about whether you've got it or not doesn't do you much good. Whereas working on your craft does. Man, I love talking to Sarah Kay. We'll be back with more of her soon. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree. You remember the first dollar you made. Now you want to grow to make your billion. Have you found the right payments partner to grow with you? Braintree lets you accept every way to pay. From PayPal to Apple Pay and everything in between. All it takes is one integration. And it doesn't matter what currency your customers use because Braintree lets you accept over 130 of them. To learn more about how your company can grow with Braintree, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. Did, did you always know that you saw things differently or did you discover that you did? Like you must have always had the ability to <laughs> uh, see things or feel. I don't know. One of the earliest memories that I have, this is not an answer to that question, but it's That's the okay. first thing that came into my head. One of the earliest memories I have is I must have been like, I don't know, five or six. Yeah. And we were learning in, in social studies or something about women who were weaving on looms. So I, I had learned about the concept of weaving on a loom. And I came home and I found my mom and I said, Mom, there's a woman inside me who is weaving on a loom and she keeps accidentally knotting up the strings. Huh. And I think it was my first grappling with, like, how do you take something abstract, like feelings, and put it in language that's based in the concrete sensory world in order to have it be understood by other humans? Yeah, what a wonderful metaphor to catch, like, to see the thing and catch it and then know, ah, uh, I can understand myself and maybe I can even be under- understood. Right. So... Maybe there are 10 kids who could have said that to their moms, and then some moms would react. And How do you – generally, whether you remember that specific instance, how did your mom react to those kind of things when they would come out? <laughs> I mean, they're great. My parents are, are great. I mean, I think in terms of, like, did you realize that this was special or different and early or later? I think something that I definitely did realize early is that my parents were weird and great. Weird in a good way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things – in terms of poetry, like when I, from kindergarten through fourth grade, 
I brought my lunch to school in a lunchbox every day. And either my mom or my dad would write a little poem on like a post-it note and fold it and put it in my lunchbox. And what it did was it created my relationship to poetry, right? So I understood poetry as something that I looked forward to, something that was a secret, something that was a gift, something that I could count on, something that was mine, you know, all of these things which seem silly and inconsequential at the time, but but ended up being the way that I feel about poetry in general. Right. So it could feel strange in that good way, but not other in that way that I can't be this or I can't chase this or I can't access. Right. And it was mine in my lunchbox. <laughs> well, yeah, that's I mean, that's a great, amazing thing that they did. Yeah. In a and, way. But not with an intention of, of like, course they weren't we hope to, to right, to, right. No, it wasn't like no. one day this will pay off. Believe me, I know <laughs> that the photographer parents weren't like, I hope our daughter finds an even more obscure right. art form right. and way to make a living. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Who they knew was smart and, and could go to, you know, Ivy League college. But they hope that. <laughs> but I want to ask, um, in thinking about your work, uh, I want to understand like where your hopefulness comes from. Be- because you obviously in the poems, you see the, wor- the sadness in the world. You see the pain. You, I know that in your work going around to high schools, you hear unspeakable stories. And yet it feels like there's a willful determination not to default to like being cool. I mean, you've talked about this in your work too, to, to default to being cool and dark. How do you find the ability to be so optimistic and hopeful in the work to kind of risk that? I <laughs> I guess the first person that I would blame it on is my mom. My mom has lived in New York City since she graduated from college, and now she's in her 60s, and she's like a New Yorker, like deep New Yorker. And pretty much every other New Yorker I've ever met, including my father, who was born and raised here, at a certain point becomes really jaded with New York. Yeah, we all become Lou Reed, basically. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. that's or really some, the default. Or some iteration of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, it's like, oh, the city, oh, the, the, you know, the weather, the, the traffic, the people, the subway, it's so dirt, you know, whatever. That's your dad. That's, that's right. Your dad, and me, and yeah. me, and anyone else that grew up here, you know, at a certain yeah. point. And my mother has never in her life stopped being amazed and full of wonder at New York. Every single thing, every day, anything. She's like, look at, wow, look at, I just don't, I don't know how that she made it. And it's not like she comes from a bubble where nothing bad happens. I mean, she, lots of things have happened and and she's had to hold a lot of things together um, many times. But for whatever reason, she has this magical way of looking at the world. My favorite story example of this, this is a slightly weird side tangent, but it helps me illustrate it. She was a photographer when she was younger and and kind of gave it up to to be a mom and raise kids. And when Instagram first came out, my best friend James, whose birthday it is today, happy birthday, James, um, my friend James got Instagram and showed my mom how to use it. James, when we were growing up, his favorite color was orange, which my mom always thought was really funny because orange is not a typical favorite color for a little boy. So my mom got Instagram, and at first I was worried that she was going to be really angry by it because she spent her life in the dark room learning how to do all of this with great nuance and care and hard work. And now all of a sudden there's a button you press and like, boop, 
now the filter's on, you know, right. and I, if I was her, you know, if I were her, that would make me furious. Uh, but again, because of the person she is, she'd be like, oh, this is magic. Oh, look at, oh, and this one does it like, you know, and, and she just thought it was wonderful. Anyway, so while she was learning how to use the program, you know, she had like two followers, me and James, and she would travel around New York. And whenever she saw something that was orange, she would take a picture of it. For James. For James. Awesome. She would take a picture of it, put it on Instagram, and and she would caption it, orange for James. That was with every picture. And then she started to go up to strangers in New York who were wearing like an orange bag, for example. And she would go up to them and she'd go, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, my nephew uh, loves the color orange. And and I was wondering if I could take a picture of your bag for him. Now, first of all, James is not her nephew. Right. Second of all, when you phrase it that way, it makes it sound like he's like a six-year-old, when in fact he is a 27-year-old yeah. young man, right? So absurd levels all around. But she's just sweet and kind of kooky enough that people generally said yes. So she would take all these pictures of strangers with orange objects, etc. And then the caption became orange for my nephew, James. And years upon years upon years have gone by. All of my friends follow her on Instagram. And now whenever my friends post pictures that have the color orange in them, the caption is always orange for my nephew, James. Right. And I don't know why this is a story that I wanted to tell, but for some reason... I do, because you're going out and finding the orange for your, for your nephew. You're going out and finding the orange and bringing it back. When I ask about hopefulness, yeah. you're like, anyone can do the other thing, but I'm finding the I'm going out and I'm finding the yeah, orange. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, she walks through the same New York City everybody else does, but she's looking for these tiny little magic moments that she can bring back and share with the people she loves, which I guess is the same instinct that I share. Sure, but... A couple things occurred to me. Okay, you went off on, uh, tangentially, so I'm going to also. I, I noticed something as you were speaking. You said, if, if I was her, if I were her, you corrected yourself. <laughs> you went, you said, if I was her, oh, no. and then you stopped. <laughs> Caught. And you went, if I were her. And it, it made me wonder if you... Um, Have training as an English teacher? No, I know you do. <laughs> but it made me... No, I, I know that. No, what it made me wonder was like about being different people at different times. Hmm. It made me wonder about as an artist, as a writer, as a communicator, if you've part of what you figured out how to do is modulate those things in oh, communicating so that you might have let that go. And one, because I did notice you catch yourself <laughs> and it was like, well, well she could have just said if I was like, no, I'm not. There's no judgment here. But what's that about for you? And, and are you forgiving of other people of those things? Because oh, I'm not. I'm like merciless a lot of the time. And of, I, of what part? Of the mistake. Oh, of grammar. <laughs> Yeah, but you, <laughs> and, and I try not to be, but I definitely would do exactly what you did. And it's, I don't know, is that a good thing or not? What do you think? Like, um, when you are talking to people and trying to tell them just express yourself and be free, you know, it goes to this whole sort of like um, prescriptivist, you know, um, descriptivist linguistic question. But like, what goes through your mind as you're talking? Are you able to release, I guess, the poet's awareness of words? Or are you always hearing yourself as you go? Because it speaks to presence, I think. Yeah, I work really hard to be as accurate in my communication as possible, whether that's in poetry, through poetry, or in conversation with someone I'm speaking with, or as an educator in front of a classroom. I think trying to be as accurate a communicator as possible is something that I focus on all the time. And 
one of the things in my art, for example, that's really important to me is to create art that doesn't alienate people. Yes. And I like the idea of being able to be dropped into any space in any group of humans and to be able to share a poem with them and they can feel comfortable with that poem. I think it comes from the fact my father, like I said, is a photographer, is an incredible artist. Um, I used to say that I write poems the way my dad takes photographs, which I still believe. But he also is not an educated man. He is extremely dyslexic and barely graduated from high school and dropped out of college, and that wasn't his path. And when I first started writing poetry, a huge goal of mine was to make poetry that my dad could enjoy. I didn't want to make poetry that made my dad feel stupid. And it has evolved past my father specifically. But I I do think that poetry, unfortunately, has been used so often as an art form meant to be elitist or meant to be exclusionary. And I don't think that that's helping anybody. Um, I think that closing the ivory tower to people who are curious about poetry doesn't gain you readers or a diversity of audience and artists. Though that's difficult. I imagine that can be difficult because you also don't want to condescend to the audience and you want to express what you... You want to be able to well, which, reach for whatever you want to reach for, Which right? goes back to your original question, which is I yeah. think it's a question of being as accurate a communicator as possible, which involves knowing who you're speaking to. So, yes, you don't want to condescend to people because you want to be speaking at... The, or I want to be speaking at the level that they're at, that I am at with them. You know, when I perform for an audience of kindergartners, which I do, it's a different performance from when I'm performing to college students or at a dive bar somewhere, right? Sure. Um, So the awareness of trying to be able to reach someone and be understood and understand them has to do with very much working hard to meet them somewhere in the middle. Right. And I wonder if that's why you're, I mean, I'm sure that is part of why you're able to connect so deeply with people because they feel like you're talking right to them, them, right to them in your work somehow. Did that, from a craft standpoint, did that come fairly quickly to you that when you started doing this, you started getting the, the hit of connection or did it take, did that process take time? No, I learned that. I'm not a performer organically. But I'm saying even in the writing of it all, did you, when you would get up and do this stuff, would you be able to see, oh, I, if I can speak it cleanly or clear, I can, I can burrow in? No, because I think my writing started as being a private endeavor, right? I, I certainly originally wasn't writing for sharing. I wasn't writing for an audience. I was writing, you know, fairly terrible journal poetry that was never meant to see the light of day. And then I got tricked into this spoken word world. And all of a sudden, this entirely other dimension of performance and the way you communicate and who is in the room and how are you speaking to them and all of those other questions appeared in a very different way than I ever experienced. Were you a popular kid in your, like, (laughs) middle school? Oh, Lord. Uh, oh, what a great oh, man! Uh, I was, you know what? In middle school, yeah. I actually did okay. You had a I minute. You had a minute. I was all right. I certainly wasn't a popular kid, but I managed to not offend anyone. Was that a goal to like get through the day without causing? A, a, <laughs> no, 
I, get, I don't think getting... it was as explicit as that. I just think that like I, the the qualities that I have as a human, yeah, were ones that in middle school were okay. And when were they, when did they become a disaster? In high school. Why? <laughs> uh, many reasons. I think you know I. Uh, there's this great 30 Rock episode that where Tina Fey or Liz Lemon has to go to a high school reunion. Yeah. And she re- she's like, yeah, I can't wait to go back. I used to get bullied so much in high school. Like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to show them. And then she gets there and realizes that she's had this, like, super warped memory. Yeah, the perception fact, is not right, what it was. And in fact, she was the terrible bully that was awful to people. You know that one, Anna? You do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I recently have, have been <laughs> reevaluating the way that I remember high school. Um, because in my head, I was this like social pariah that every, you know, just that was whatever. But I don't actually think that was the case. I think. No, but it felt, but, but you felt alien. You felt alone and alienated. I, so here's, here's the truth of the matter. I didn't drink or smoke and right. at all. And I grew up in Manhattan and kids grew up fast here. And I think it is entirely possible that I was the only person in my graduating class who didn't drink or smoke. And at the time, that was You graduated high school having not had a drink or smoking a joint. Correct, yeah. Right. And I, um, at the time, it was just one of many choices. I love that, that you I then went making. to Brown, which of all the Ivies <laughs> is a hilarious place to go if you're where, where determined also, not to smoke Where pot. I also continued not to drink or smoke, incidentally. Right. Um, at the time that I was not drinking and smoking in high school, uh, it was one of many choices. It wasn't a big deal to me. It was like, no, nah, I'd rather not. No big, you know, whatever. I'm doing these other things. Um, but it was a huge choice for everyone around me. And everyone saw me make that choice and was like, oh, Oh, does this girl think she's better than us? Like, oh, is she? Oh, is she trying to tell us that what we're doing is not, or whatever it was. And how did that hit off of you? Like, what did that make you feel? Right. Well, this is what played into my narrative of like nobody likes me. Sure. But it was. I think it had to do with all of our mutual self consciousness crashing into each other, as opposed to anyone actually having having any <laughs> feelings of. Have Have you found that in your success? as an artist, that people from that time have come forward to you? <laughs> no. Not, Never? Not really. Have you run into them or ever had them be like, oh, Sarah was my friend or like, or... No. Here's the thing. I'm making yeah. it sound way more high drama than it was. Like, I was a super overachieving... Oh, sure. Of course. Like, pretty annoying. Like, I ran... You I raised was, your hand in class a lot? I, first of all, I was on student council in a school where that was not a cool right, not thing. A, okay? Yeah. I was on student council every single year... From kindergarten until I graduated in 12th grade, which means I ran for student council every wow, year. Wow. You know, this gets back to this conversation that Anna and I were having the other day about Tracy Flick from an election. And, like, it sounds like you, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, not an evil, I mean, you weren't the evil version. But, no, right. But, but there's a very fine line between um, being Tracy Flick and, and just trying really hard. Yeah. Well, when I graduated, we had, you know, uh, superlatives. The two yeah. superlatives that I was awarded when I graduated, one was most likely to get away with murder. Uh, there, yeah. And most school spirit. Fantastic. So that should tell you a lot about. And who you were I was. performing during this whole time. Um, and did you keep it a secret? Did they know? No. You kept it a secret. I kept it mainly a secret. How? Like because the internet was a big thing. No, it wasn't though. I mean the internet. I, the- there was was there there was faith. I mean Facebook 
existed? No, not until I like, like senior right, year. Yeah, like right at the end of high school. And I was one of those kids that was like, I'm gonna wait till I get to college and make my Facebook with my college email account. I don't know why that voice was necessary, but that's no, it was what I sounded like in I think my that head voice was really when I was essential. in high school. <laughs> right. So you were able to do all that stuff under the basically under the radar? Yeah, which was I think a big part of why it appealed to me. Because in high school I played the role of overachieving super smart student council kid who didn't drink and smoke, who the teachers loved, who everyone else hated. And then I could, who everyone perceived as being, playing by the rules, being safe and a goody two-shoes, which was in in moderation true. Um, But outside, I got to go to this weird dive bar on the Lower East Side once a week. I got to share poems that were about, you know, things I cared about or was scared of or whatever it was I was going through, mainly to a room full of adults yeah. because it was a dive bar. Hey, we got to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more with Sarah Kay, the brilliant poet, writer, and storyteller. This episode of The Moment is also brought to you by Slate's Gift Guide. Make holiday shopping easier with the Slate Gift Guide, a curated collection of products selected by Slate editors and writers. These are the things that most improved our lives this year, wrapped up in one guide for you. Find something for everyone on your list at picks.slate.com. I had written this question down, which because in one of your either speeches or poems, you talk about that poetry and theater were secret loves for you. And I'm I'm wondering whether, because I've heard, I've thought about this in different ways, and do artists... Do you think, as you talk to them, need to keep need to keep certain dreams secret for a while to protect their birth? Do you think, or how do you? I, you know, it's funny. I was at um, I have this poem that it, it's it's called "On the Discomfort of Being in the Same Room as the Boy You Like," and it's written from the perspective of a very specific age time. And I never performed that poem. And then recently, I was at a middle school, and yeah. for whatever reason, I was like, you know what? I'm going to perform this poem in front of this audience and they are going to squirm like hell. And what was funny is when I talked about it, I said, I don't know about you guys, but when I was in middle school, if I liked someone, the idea of liking that person was the most mortifying thing. Like if someone was like, someone found out. Yeah. If someone was like, Hey, I heard you like Tim, you'd be like, no, why would you even, I can't, whatever. Right. But as you grow older, that <laughs> you eventually shift. So if someone says, like, hey, I heard you like Tim, you're like, yeah, do you like know if he likes me? I'd love to hang out with him. Yeah. You know, whatever. Like that, you start to own that crush. And I think neither is better or worse. It's just the, the way you move. So in the beginning, I had this secret of loving poetry and theater, and it was my secret. And the idea of someone knowing that I desired to be on stage or be seen yes. was mortifying right. because it implied that I felt that I was a person who deserved yeah, to be seen. thought you were seen. special. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And who are you to think you were special? Exactly. Miss Goody Two Shoes Student Council, whatever. <laughs> exactly. And then eventually I was able to move away from that very, very specific anxiety to be able to say, yeah, I, I do want to be Well, it's really hard seen. to consider, it's really hard to make that transition in the liking someone thing to understanding that actually your liking them might be a gift to them, right? Because in the beginning, there's something about it, it's scary, Well, they, they, it's uh, the rejection thing is so heavy. 
But it's the same thing like with the work. I mean, ultimately, it seems to me you've now found a way. I'm sure the writing is for you and a self, uh, an act of self, right? But you've, it seems, made the transition to understanding that sharing it is giving a gift to them. And then that takes it off of yourself, doesn't it? And make it make it easier to not think like I'm special and just to make it like, well, I hope I'm, I'm sharing. I hope I'm doing something for you too. Right. I mean, I think it, it goes back to the, you know, listening is as important as speaking is that it, it it's not one thing. It's both. It's two sides of a coin. It's I'm not just interested in sharing my poem and hoping you like it. And getting your applause. And getting my applause and and getting off stage and, you know, not sticking around to hear the open mic. I think it's it's about participating in a gift exchange. But beyond that, it seems like with your work, and it ties into this question of optimism I was asking you about, it seems like to the, the viewer, to the listener, it seems like you have a very strong mission Yes, to be there with the exchange of and to listen as hard as you as you perform it, but even in the work itself, it seems to me, is you are constantly trying to light a path for people. Maybe not always just the young art. I'm not even talking about when you're talking to young artists. I'm saying you know when even in a poem as personal as the Dece- December poem, it feels like you are lighting, trying to light a path about this constant becoming that we're all going through in connection. Well, when I write a poem, I try very much to be honest with myself about where I am when I'm writing it. So if I'm head over heels in love with someone, I'm going to write that poem being head over heels in love. And then maybe five months from now, uh, we've had a terrible breakup and I hate that person. But I like knowing that I can revisit that poem as kind of like a landmark that I built for where I was at that time. And because I've been doing this since I was 14, I have all these landmarks that are standing in the sand. But you use the second person a lot in your poems, mm-hmm. right? True. And uh, and so I... <laughs> are you about to ask me, who are they all about? Yeah, can you imagine? If I'm, no, I'm not going to go quite to that reductive. I have a list of every poem you've ever written. And, uh... But it seems that the power in the second person... Even in the ones where it's obvious that the second per- that you're talking to yourself partially, mm-hmm. but it seems like the power in the second person and the, one of the ways in which you use it is to allow each member of the audience to try to take a little something from it and use it as a lesson. Maybe you're not comfortable saying I'm trying to give lessons, but it does feel like that's a part of that's bundled into your mission is if you found a secret for yourself that has made living easier, it seems like you're trying to share that oh, with, the, with the listener. I, I often say that the, the, the conversation that's being had is I'm saying, here's what I'm working on right now. This is what I've got so far. Take a look and let me know if you can make more sense of it than I can. Right. And that's true of almost every poem I've ever written because my instinct for writing a poem comes from anytime there's something I'm trying to figure out. So if I have something and I've been tossing it around in my brain and I've been coming at it from every angle and I just can't I just can't make it make sense that Rubik's cube is just not clicking, then often that's when I sit down and I have to try to poem my way through it. Poeming is really a verb to me and it's a puzzling and a, a problem-solving strategy that I use in my brain genuinely. Um, That's a common denominator for every poem I've ever written. So if that's the case, if that's why I sit down to write a poem, then when I have finished the poem, sometimes it means that I have figured it out or I haven't figured out, but at least I got a new poem out of it. Right. And I've read you say that before, but then the, 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 I wonder, do you continue, how do you decide which of those have the broader utility where they're not just for you, Mm. but they might help somebody else and and you're going to share it do you share every poem you write no so how did what's that next piece of the process which is whether you figured out or not oh 
there's something in here that maybe some kid or some guy or some woman in the audience is going to hear, and maybe it's going to help them somehow. The- yeah, it's it's not quite as planned out. Right. You mean it's just like if you dig, you, you might just, if you still dig it, you're going to share it. Yeah, sometimes I'm just really excited about a poem, and I'm like, yeah. I just, I want to see what happens when this goes out into space. I want to see if people have a response to it. You know, I, I don't feel confident with a poem unless I performed it half a dozen times before I'm like, okay, this is a poem now. Right. Right. That part of the creation of the poem is what happens in front of a live audience for do, me. Do you still get surprised if you say something and at, at that moment when the room becomes bittersweet and you see a couple people get teary-eyed and connect, does it still surprise you? Do you count on it? Do you need it? <laughs> you certainly don't count on it. <laughs> um, again, that that to me is a, an example of what we were talking about earlier in that that's about where you are in your life coming to this moment and less about me and my poem. So you don't feel a kinship with that person necessarily. I do. No, but no, it's okay if you don't. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm so interested in how, because of the connection I've seen people have to your work, to you, I'm wondering if it's a, uh, if it's a, sa- a way you keep your sanity is by telling yourself, I'm not going to have that kinship. Like, I'm, I'm consciously not going to say we're in this moment to- no, together. No, okay, so here's what it is. There's a school of thought in spoken word poetry, which is that you're supposed to write as raw as possible. And then when you get on stage, you're supposed to relive, be in whatever that poem is. The catharsis. I thought I was going to yes, I was going to okay. ask you about that catharsis, whether that's the way you approach it or not. Yeah. So there's definitely a school of thought of this. And in fact, I, I, I've seen it a lot specifically in uh, college slams. Right. Uh, a lot of college kids, there's a, there's a big national college competition called Cupsy, and they go and they compete. And I've seen a lot of kids there do poems that are about the, you know, the rawest part of themselves. And then in the performance, you can tell they are just living it, right? I'm not necessarily a fan of that school of thought because I don't think that it's safe Especially if you're writing about the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you. I don't want you to get on stage and every time you perform this poem, which might be a very important, beautiful, incredible poem that you need to perform and that people need to hear. But I don't want it to be that every time you get on stage to perform it, you're re-traumatized and are in a bad place, right? You got self-preservation is a real thing, right? So to me, it's not about you going on stage and reliving whatever that poem is about. It's you going on stage and being an excellent performer such that the people in the audience get to experience what it was you wanted them to experience when you wrote the poem originally. Does that make sense? So you're in a completely different moment from where the audience is, or rather I, when I'm performing, I'm a magician, I'm conjuring, I'm creating things in front of you so that you can be where I want you to be. I'm not there because I have to be the one controlling the dials. Right. You're taking your, actually, your experience doesn't matter to you when you're doing it. Their experience matters exactly. to you. But that also gives you a certain distance. Sure. A certain emotional distance when you think of yourself as a magician. Yeah. It gives you a certain emotional distance in that you know you're performing an emotional, not trick is a loaded word, but you're performing an emotional moment. You're setting it up and you've already gone, like you said, it's a some shadow version of yourself going through it. Yeah, and it's not a science, right? So it's not like, and now I check out. And the well, I'm sure there must be up. moments right. that it connects. Totally. And I and there, that doesn't mean that I'm not in the space with the people. I'm very much in the space with the people, and I'm very much aware of where they're at. In fact, I would say that a huge part of the performing is listening in terms of perception of audience and where 
what they're experiencing, what they're in the mood for. A lot of times I don't figure out what, what my lineup of poems is going to be until I'm already halfway into the set. You know, this set. is a really deep concept you're talking about for writers. And a lot of writers listen to, a lot of the listeners of the show are people who write or, or are artists in some way, which is you kind of have to find a path out of self-indulgence and why rewriting matters so much, <laughs> right? Which is the first time you write something, it's totally for you. Not just you, Sarah, but one, when one writes. But the whole rewriting thing is sort of now, like, go through it and take your the reason out, kind of, like, or the emotional weight out, and then just try to leave it for the reader right? as you go through so that it's not just a selfish, it's a giving gesture then. Right. So when I'm writing, when I'm the person alone in my space creating the poem, that's all for me. I'm not, audience has nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm thinking about whatever it was I was trying to figure out, whatever it was I've been tossing around in my brain, whatever wordplay I've become obsessed with, whatever it is, the writing is me. The editing is with an ear to how, what is the craft? How do I make this a poem that is, you know, beautiful and smart and original and creative and all of those things that come in when you're talking about craft. That's the sort of second visit. And then the third and the fourth and the fifth or however many revisions it requires to make it a, an excellent piece of writing. Yeah. And then when I get on stage, whatever I'm going through at that moment in my life gets not necessarily left behind, but gets second priority to what we can make together in this room right now. So sometimes that involves bringing in what I'm going through in my life. Sometimes it means ignoring it. But whatever it is, what we're creating in this space together, and I really feel that it's being created together. It's not just me outputting. That's what's taking the highest priority. And that requires just like, you know, with sex, a really good understanding of where your partner is at. Sure. And in this sense, my partner is the audience, right? So I have to be paying attention to what they're liking and what they're not liking and where they want to go and, and you know, what, what can challenge but them. You but you also in a have to be way. able to lose yourself. Yes. Don't you? I mean, isn't part of it to allow yourself to feel something? Certainly, certainly. But I think what the feeling is, is, is what I'm feeling in the moment, in the space that I'm in, not what yes, I felt sure. when I wrote the Absolutely poem. right. Presence. Yeah. This battle for being really alive in that space, in yeah. that moment. Well, you know, and that's in your um, commencement address at Scripps, which is another thing people should listen to, you, you talk about uh, constant becoming. And it does seem like a theme in a bunch of your... In, in your narrative and in a bunch of your work. And do you ever find yourself trying to hold on to what's comfortable? Do you have to propel yourself forward to keep taking risks? It's so funny because on the one hand, I hate change. Right. But on the other hand, it's... I live a very strange life. In what way? In that I think most humans have rituals that help them feel stable. Sure. From the simplest, you know, I wake up and I drink my cup of coffee at the same time. I wake up and I go for a run. I pray at the same time. I meditate. I, you know, call my, you know, best friend once a week. Whatever it is, there are these markers that we create for ourselves to say like, okay, the world is not coming to an end because here's how I know I do the same thing at this time, et cetera. I don't have a single thing that can stay consistent day to day. Why? Because I am 
on the road eternally. Like 200 days a year? Yeah, more, probably. 300. Yeah, you said you hadn't, you realized you had it, had spent less than 30 days in this. Yeah, as of July. Fewer than, fewer than 30 days. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you say? As of July of this past year, um, I had not spent 30 consecutive days in one physical location since the day I graduated from college, which was five years ago. What are you running from, Sarah? Yeah, right? This is, what do this you is think? the real, that's the real question. Well, that's your ritual. What is the fear of standing still? What do you, have you tried to figure out what the fear of standing still, if there is a fear of standing still? I think there is. I think there's a little bit of a fear. Of, I mean, there's a genuine love of what I do, right? So yes. I, I love this work. That's that's not, you know, I'm not doing it because I have to, certainly. I'm doing it because I'm extremely lucky that I get to and I work really hard to be able to. I do think that there's a part of this that is, um, you know, the the idea of getting to be a person who creates art and travels the world and teaches and meets with incredible, interesting humans that I would never have otherwise been able to meet and who people want to listen to and want to see is still so absolutely impossible to me right. that I am not convinced that... That it's going to keep going if you don't uh, keep chasing absolutely. it. Absolutely. I am, I am huh. definitely of the mind that like the fact that someone wants me to come share poems somewhere is a joke and is a great joke that I'm winning sure. out on. But at some point, the world may figure out that a human shouldn't be allowed to do such a thing, and all will come crumbling down. So do you not consider the groups of people who, like the, the, the people who write you or come to see you, do you not think of them as like um, loyal fans? Or like, do you accept that you have fans? Or you smile just now, like almost like, well, no, I don't, like what? Because <laughs> you have them, right? I mean, you have an audience, yeah, it's so funny because, in, like I said, when I was younger, the perception was that I was the ultimate kid who played by the rules. And yet, somehow, I ended up being an adult who plays by no rules. I mean, I have a career that doesn't exist. I have a the ability to do things that, you know, I've had to carve out this very strange... No, it is true. I mean, Mary Carr, who's a friend of mine, now, so told me, you know, and when, when she was, you know, you can make the argument, like, the best poet, you know, she couldn't even eat, she barely eat. Right. And she had to become a, mem- a memoirist right. to even then become someone whose poems were read despite the fact that she was lauded as like, so yes, it's an, a crazy life. Yeah. And I, I don't take it for granted in the least. And I'm, I'm very aware of how lucky that is. Yeah. Um, and I work hard for it. And it's something that I still am tickled by that people, the, 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 very, the, the very smallest kernel of it is still that people are willing to hear me and see me. And that in and of itself is the gift. What did it feel like? You told me that you did spend 30 days and you made yourself disconnect and just be work. Did that feel okay? It did. Um, it felt lovely. It was such a gift. I, I, I'm trying to make it so that I do it more. I'm trying to make it so that at least once a year I take a month and disappear because I think I'm learning. You know, you don't, you don't realize what you don't have yeah. until you get a taste of it. And then you're like, oh, damn, this is what I've been missing out on. So wait, do you have, when you said you don't have any rituals, do you have any that help you to do the thing you do as a writer? Meaning, like I, for me, like I have to, I get up, I make coffee, and right. then I do morning pages. Yeah. I meditate. you're a normal I take human. a long, no, because <laughs> I can't get, it's like the way that I keep writers, like the way that I'm able to write. Sure is by, uh, I hypnotize myself somehow. Yeah. It's uh, putting myself in a st- uh, some kind of 
a positive state to do this work. And I've found that if I do these things, I can then do my work. Do you have none of that for you? Do you have to write every day? Do you not? Can you just do it when you feel like it? Is it part of just being in this flow of life? Is your flow state? Well, you know how we were talking about how my mom can walk through the same shitty New York everyone else can, but somehow is full of wonder when she does it. I think anybody, when they're traveling, is in a heightened state, right? When when you're in your normal life, nothing stands out to you. You're like, okay, this is what my living room smells like. This is what it sounds like on my street. This is normal, right? And then when you travel away from home, all of a sudden your senses are heightened because you're like, what is that smell? What What is that sound? I don't yeah. know. Where am I? You know? And and all of a sudden you're you're kind of in this goosebumpy state of being where you're paying attention more. I'm in that state of being all the time because I never stop traveling and I never stop going to new places and meeting new people. So I'm always in this kind of heightened sense of listening and watching and and soaking up like a sponge all of the things that are going on around me. So in that respect, I'm lucky because I'm forced to be in a state of being which is very helpful for when you want to be it keeps you in like a state of flow because you're you are all those nerve endings are firing yeah it's also exhausting well i was gonna say yeah do you ever worry that that it costs you something in terms of like your interpersonal like your relationships with people you care about it's taken me a long time to learn how to do it and i'm still not how to keep the relationships going totally yeah and i'm not an expert in it but i've learned a lot it matters to you too yes to can to have that some consistent relationships with people. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that I have friends and family who adore me and support me enough to understand that this is the work I do and thus necessitates me not being physically present for a lot of the time. And so we're able to maintain relationships in... You do it however you have Yeah, to. exactly. And I'm, I'm lucky that I have that support in my life. But it, requ- it does require work. It's not <laughs> another thing to not be taken for granted, you know? So we'll, we'll finish up by... by I, I, I want to I ask, you know... Um, can, can you talk about who you were sort of like the day before the TED Talk? <laughs> like where your life was like and who you were and, and like what, because I'm really interested in what it felt like to go from that to this other thing. Um, and did you know before the TED, like did you know when everyone gave you this t- second standing ovation and that thing that your life had changed forever? Or did it take till the thing was released? So no, like, certainly not. So you said when you first showed up there, and you were going to do it, you felt you weren't sure you were worthy of it. Or like, what? tell me, who were you then? Like, what was your life like? Then? Okay, so I, when I was this, how old were you? I, when I was a senior in college, I was getting ready to graduate. Yeah. All of my friends were either going to business school, law school, medical school, or becoming consultants. What was Phil doing? Right. So Phil and I were not. And Phil we were K, like, who's your partner in Project Voice. Correct. Phil yes. and I were, were not doing any of those things. And we're like, uh oh, now what? Right. And I had been teaching after-school spoken word poetry workshops weekly at a local high school nearby where I went to college. And one day I came out after this high school class that I taught, and I was walking down the street, and I was like, man, that is the happiest I get all week. When I come out of that workshop, the world is so much better. And the kids that I get to work with and the poetry that they create and the way that they convince me over and over again that there's something to this— 
that's what's bringing me the most joy. And how do I do that? And how do I follow that? And Phil and I had done some performing together and some teaching together, but not a whole lot. Just, you know, basically every year during our month-long winter break, we would do a little mini tour and go to a bunch of schools. And that was about it. And I I found him and I said, listen, this is going to sound kind of absurd, but what do you think if we just tried to do this really for a year, just a year, while we're trying to figure out what else we want to do with the rest of our lives? Sure, like your version of Teach America or something. Yeah, right. We already know we can do it. We already know that people respond well when we do it. We love doing it. Why not? What do we got to lose? And he was like, okay, yeah, like, let's try it. Um, And so that was the plan. We were going to graduate and we were going to try it for a year. In that year, I got asked to do the TED Talk. And at the time, TED was not the world phenomenon that it is now. They had just started putting... The videos The up. videos up. So some people knew about it. Uh, the real diehards knew about it, you know, but but most people didn't. But Anna told me the day before, she said that you told the story that the day before the talk or something, you were wearing a dress and people confused you. So I would... <laughs> I, I knew that Ted was a big deal, yeah. but I but as far as I was concerned, it was just like, you know, another great opportunity to do a uh-huh. performance, which I had done a bunch of times. It was the first speech I had ever been asked to do. So I had been doing poetry for a long time. And teaching. I mean, when you I've, I've seen Project Voice, you, you do talk. You don't just do poetry. You're you're engaging. Sure. The... Sure. So I had done poetry and I had been teaching. Um but uh, when I got contacted by the folks at TED, um, we had a short phone call and the woman who organized it said, hey, you know, I've seen your work. It's really great. I don't know how much you know about TED, but we have these 18-minute TED Talks, but we also have little things that we do interspersed where, you know, we'll have a musician play or we'll have a dancer do something. Yeah. So we're not quite sure what we want you to do yet. Maybe we just have you come do a poem in between something or maybe we'll have you do like a nighttime entertainment thing. And I was like, I will hold your towel. Right, whatever you want. Uh, whatever you say. Right. And she's like, okay, well, this year's theme is the rediscovery of wonder. What does that mean to you? Uh, and I was like, oh, that, you know, that sounds like my job description. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, you know, I'm teaching these teenagers and um, they're, they're coming from a lot of people telling them what they can and cannot be. And they've had to put on a really tough face and I oftentimes have to do my best to try to remind them that they're allowed to feel things and they're allowed to not only feel them but communicate that they're feeling um, and that those feelings are not wrong and that by sharing them and by communicating and by articulating them, they're going to help other people as well. And so, I, you know, once you get me started, I could talk for, as you've seen, a long time about it. And she stopped me and she was like, I changed my mind. I want you to give an 18-minute talk. And I was like, oh, right. wait, uh, no, let's go back to the one poem. That sounded yeah. like a great op. I don't know why we uh. changed our minds. Um, so then... I didn't hear from anyone for months. Now, this is no longer how it works, okay? So if you're planning on giving a TED Talk, I hate to break it to you that this is not the way the show runs anymore. But now, you know, you have weekly, are you going back and forth with drafts and blah, blah, blah. At the time, again, because it was still kind of new, they said, like, great, we'll see you then, hung up the phone, and nothing. Like, no one saw a draft. No one even asked me my topic. Like, nothing. And just I show up with 18 just minutes. Just show up with 18 minutes and we'll see you there. Yeah. So I got to Long Beach. Um, I was very excited and nervous. I saw Al Gore and Bill Gates talking in the lobby, and I took like a creeper shot on my cell phone and texted it to my friends and said, Geeks Gone Wild. 
and was just overjoyed. But but the day that I had to do my like sound check, yeah. and I was like, okay, here we go. I'm gonna go run my thing. Then they'll get, you know this is the last minute. Oh, but maybe they, they'll give me notes. Yeah, maybe they'll give me notes. Maybe they'll say like you know no, you got to change this whole thing. I was like really ready for it. So I get up there and I start the first probably minute of the poem that starts that TED talk. And Chris Anderson, who's the head curator of TED, is sitting in the audience with a with a bunch of papers, and he he stops me. He goes, "Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Do you not have any slides?" And I was like, "Oh, no, no, I don't. I don't have any tech." And he's like, "Oh, okay, then you're fine. You're fine. We'll see you tomorrow." So nobody <laughs> had heard anything. I mean, really, I could have been like, "Great, next are my, you know, are just 17 minutes of slurs, right?" Like no one <laughs> had anything. But I was like, "Okay, well, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll see you." And uh, TED is a quite an. Uh, event and all of the speakers that year were phenomenal and I watched all of these people uh, who were so much more accomplished and smart and brilliant and I had the sinking realization that I was extremely out of my league and definitely did not belong here and this was going to be a disaster and and all of the things that your brain tells you when you're in these situations and uh the day before also this was in an earlier time so the a higher percentage of the audience were older White, white males, men. yeah. Now they've worked very hard to, sure. to make it a more diverse attendee population. But at the time, it really was a lot of straight white dudes. Um, and I looked like I was someone's daughter, you know. Like people would look at me, look at my name tag, and very quickly walk as quickly in the other direction as possible. Right. So it was pretty lonely. And the day before, I was standing near a table that had like food set out and just hoping someone would come talk to me or be nice. And uh, this woman walked up to me and smiled at me and I was like, yes, okay. And I smiled, huge smile back because I was so excited. And she asked me if I knew whether there was any dairy in one of the dishes and handed me her plate to throw out for her. And I just, like it happened so fast that I don't even think... It registered, you know, like I, I was just like, it didn't okay. Hurt. It was no. At the time, you know, someone asks you to throw their plate out for you, you do. I don't know. Right. Like I was, <laughs> I just was happy to help. I was happy someone was talking to me. And then later, it occurred to me, like, oh, she thought I was part of the waitstaff. To be fair, like I was significantly younger than everybody else in attendance. I was a, an absolutely acceptable mistake to make. And I find, you know, n- absolutely no offense taken in, you know, the profession. Obviously. But this is why Carly Fiorino shouldn't be president, clearly, because she <laughs> came up to you. I just no. want to make it. I just, Do not I just totally get me in that kind older, of trouble. What are you kidding? Older woman who Jeez. was a Ted. I just totally no. want to make it that it was her. No. I know it wasn't her. But that's just the picture in my head no. is that it was her. So, no, but so then, but so right. So basically, the day before, it, was just, it was just like the most ironic yes and then you have to get up and address these people so you were that's how anonymous you are this is what i wanted to get that's how anonymous you were correct you were confused for the wait staff well the best part though this is this is the second part of the story that i don't tell very often but so i called my mom in tears and i was like i don't i can't do this i don't belong here like this this is going to be a disaster i i'm going to blow it you know i just watched someone like you know 3d print a heart like this is (laughs) not gonna work and my mom in her you know eternal 
wonder and sweetness was like, no, everything, you know, everything's gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be fine. And Morgan Spurlock, the filmmaker, was um, a speaker that year. And he and I had crossed paths years earlier because he had been a speaker at an event my high school had put on. And he didn't know me, but I, you know, brought this to him and we had hung out during the conference and he was very sweet and made me feel much less alone. And um, he, we were hanging out that night and I had mentioned that my mom had called to see if I needed anything, which was very sweet and motherly of her because she was in Newport Beach, which is about an hour away from where the conference takes place, which is where my grandmother was. So she was visiting my grandmother an hour away. And Morgan Spurlock said, wait, so is she going to come see you tomorrow? And I was like, oh, no, they don't <laughs> They don't let you just like bring guests. Right. And it's a bajillion dollars to have a, a pass to go to TED. So that's not, not available. And he was like, well, I... I'm sure they could find a day pass for your mom. And I was like, no, I, I don't think, no, I, I couldn't. And he just marched right up to one of the organizers oh, and was like, excuse so cool. me, is it possible for us to get a day pass for Sarah Kay's mom to come hear her do her TED Talk tomorrow? And they were like, uh, y- y- yeah, I get, yeah, sure, we could we could figure that out. So I called my mom and I said, mom, do you, do you want to come hear me do my talk tomorrow? And she was like, yeah, okay, you know, th- that sounds fun. I'll be there. So she drove up to hear the talk. When she drove up, I was in a session listening, like watching from the audience. So I couldn't be there to greet her. So I said, when you get here, there's like an entry tent, like just come in and and wait there. And when I'm done with the session, I'll come out and find you. So I finished the session and I, and I come out to find her and she's standing in the tent. I walk up and she gives me a huge hug and she goes, Missy, guess what? Someone mistook me for a caterer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh, that's fantastic. And I was like, why are you proud of this fact? And she was like, well, I just wanted you to know that it wasn't just you. And I was like, okay. I'm, thank you. Thank you for being a comrade oh, in arms. That is awesome. I mean, horrible and awesome. And then, but so then you do the talk, you get yes. these standing ovations, it connects. You must know while it's happening that it was going well. I knew that it was going well. Although... <laughs> you know, at the time, the thing that was the most pressing was they were very strict on time. Oh, yeah, time. on that age. You know, even Tony Robbins, when he did that Al Gore thing, he was like, I know I'm going 10 seconds over. Yeah, so they're very, very, very strict that, on time, and yeah. there's a br- blinking red light in yeah. front of you. So I did the first poem, and everyone applauded. Well, and they didn't just me, applaud. They went crazy. And, they, and they, they gave me a standing ovation. And if you watch the video, you can see on my face, first, I'm relieved that the poem's over. This, this is the exact line of thinking. My face goes, relief that it's over. Then surprise that everyone's so enthusiastic. Then extreme joy that this has gone well. And then utter fear. Like, oh, no, everyone has to shut up and sit down because right, I don't so I have keep going. <laughs> Stop clapping. Stop clapping. And so when you when you do it, because, you know, the, one of the I mean, um, this conversation is so fun for me. This is exactly the reason I started the podcast. I, I rarely think about why I started it, but it was this idea that people who accomplish remarkable things process these moments differently than the rest of us do. These sort of big highs or lows. And you went from this sort of anonymity to then doing the thing that meant so much to you for these people, it went over so hu- hugely. It had such a great benefit that you, to so many people, right? The millions of people who've watched it and then the stuff they've written and the people that they've told. But I'm, I'm so curious about what you felt like, the, what the come down from it was, and then how you wrote your next... <laughs> like when it all happened, when it came and out. I've never written another Right, poem. that was it. 
<laughs> what the f- what like well a great example of how unaware of it yeah. i was was afterwards some you know people were coming in introducing themselves and and shaking my hand and um and someone said like oh man get ready because when they post that video your website's gonna crash and i was like i don't have a website <laughs> perfect and everyone was like what? what and i was like yeah oh i well i uh i i made a project voice website and they were like oh no honey like Someone SOS like someone some and then like from out of the cloud of brilliant Tedsters comes like a web designer and he's like I will save you, you right um, because that's what what happens when you have that kind of community but but when um, so how long after that did the talk go up I think it went up not long did you prepare yourself no I mean I I got a I I had you got a, a website but I'm saying did you prepare yourself like internally? no because I didn't the, there had been no precedent for this yet not really. I think like maybe Sir Ken Robinson yeah. had gone. You mean crazy yours was viral. one of the first ones that exploded like that? I mean, not not literally the first one, but, but it, it one was of, early, in the first it was wave enough, of that. Yeah, it was early enough that that hadn't even really happened that much yet, and so it wasn't as though I had a template to look at and be like, "Uh oh, that might happen." But did 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 the success of that change the way that you thought about what you did or yourself? Were you able to later? Do- how? What do you Much mean? Much later. I think at first all I w- was doing was was trying to juggle all of the things happening. So you didn't actually take a minute and go, okay, I have to reset. No, you were no, just like, no. oh, yes, I'll speak there. I'll do right. that. I better write another thing. Right. I have to go show up. Yeah, yeah. Also keep in mind that like that almost immediately thereafter, I went back to grad school. So I was in grad school getting my master's degree in education. And my, my week consisted of Monday through Friday, I was in school teaching high school English from, you know, 7.30 to 3. Then I would go to night class to study at grad school until, like, 8 p.m. And I would go home, grade papers, lesson plan, get ready, get, wake up the next day, Monday through Friday. Then th- Friday afternoon at 3.30, I would go to the train station or the airport and fly to go do a gig all weekend. This is after the talk hit? This is after the talk, yeah. After Why? it went... No, because it's amazing that you would just continue the, sort of, like, the regular... <laughs> well, again, and- again, like... What was it I was to think was going to happen? Being a professional poet or a well-known poet or a poet that can live on poetry is not a thing, really. Yeah, but the practicality of that is, I don't know, it's most people who are poets aren't practical. Well, the way you, right? Most <laughs> no, artists, true. most artists aren't that practical. Like, no, most uh, artists have to figure out how they're going to survive if art is important to them. Sure. And for me, you know, what the, the immediate effect of the, of the TED Talk going live was that a bunch of schools reached out to us and were excited to have poet educators in their classrooms, which was amazing. And we had been doing this for a while. I knew I I was aware that I was really good at teaching spoken word poetry. It's like the one thing that I had confidence in. I'm a great spoken word poetry educator, but I didn't know anything else about education. I had no training in education. You know, I couldn't teach anything other than the one thing I knew how to teach. And I was like, you know what? We're basically running an education program. And if we're going to do this, I would like to do it well. I would like to know that we're not disrupting the education of kids. I would like to know that we're assisting what teachers are already trying to do and that we're just going to be an additional tool for teachers to be able to use and furthering the curriculum that they have to teach. So I went back to get my master's degree to learn about education and figure out how we're going to do this well. And that's what, you know, that that's what the the idea was in that. Um, but it caused for the most exhausting year of my entire life. And I would not recommend it. No, but I think it really ties right into the whole thing you said about the way you perform, which is once you're up there, you're doing it for them. And you obviously even use this TED Talk, the momentum 
to figure out how to serve, how to continue to sort of like serve all these other people, which is um, kind of a beautiful thing, Sarah. Thanks. And um, look, I've kept you sitting in one place for an hour and 10 minutes, so I'm sure that that's already making me very <laughs> nervous that you have to keep going. Um, thank you so much. Hey, Anna, did I ask everything that you'd want? We're good? All right, because I told her if I missed something, she could uh, ask you something, but you're good. All right, great. Sarah, so if people want to find you, you do now have a website. I do now. A couple, have right? A you beautiful have... website. A great. beautiful website. You have a book coming out in February, which is called The Type. And people can see the poem The Type, which is really powerful um, uh, online mm-hmm. now. And then you're putting out an illustrated version of that poem in February. Yes. If people want to book you uh, and you, or you and Phil, they mm-hmm. can do that through where? If you're interested in bringing poetry, educators to your school and specifically in the vein of education then check out project voice and that's not just me and phil that's a whole team of poet educators who are all brilliant and fantastic um one of them was on snl last night so booyah um and that's the that's the project voice team and then if you're interested in me specifically you can just find my website it's pretty easy to find great and sarah's on twitter though you don't tweet that often but well, i'm i'm on it I'm getting better. You're on there. I've been following you since the very beginning. And <laughs> it took me a very long time to to ease into it. As you've already observed, I'm someone who tries to be very careful with my language. And so the idea of the fastness that is required for Twitter communication was very nerve-wracking. On but Twitter, I'm, you just got to blow, though, man. Right, you can't, which you just that, gotta... this, is, this is extremely difficult for me. But I'm I'm getting the hang of it. I'm getting there. So you can find Sarah there. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Please don't send me screenplays or screenplay ideas or uh, any poems. I'm, um, I, I just I can't deal with the sadness, the highs and lows of the poems every day. So don't, don't send those. <laughs> I won't send them to Sarah. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Sarah Kay, thank you so much. I have such tremendous gratitude for the work that you do. And I've just seen firsthand in my own home the power that it has. So please don't stop. Thank you. All right, good, everybody. See you next time. Thanks. Hi, Panoply listeners. If you're up on the news, you know. It's time to talk about race. I mean, symbols of racial intimidation don't belong in popular culture. They belong in a museum. Join hosts Raquel Cepeda, Tanner Colby, and Veratune Thurston as they discuss the forces shaping the future of race in the U.S. From gentrification in the classroom... You're fundamentally changing the landscape, and you can be a constructive part of that change, or you can hide in fear and go to private school to our national identity and the economy. When you don't have a long history, you have to create something else to bind you. And the U.S. created commerce to bind us. Search for About Race in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app.